4. Booked with Shirley Whiteside. Now I'm pleased to say that debut author Thomas Welsh has joined me for a chat about his novel Anna Undreaming. Now this novel has a very intriguing cover um, and you had a hand in it? I did, yeah. I got a few got a few options to choose from. I gave them the central idea um, and that idea of this motif uh, someone falling into the city and, and kind of drowning or struggling to swim uh, above the surface of the water. Um, so, yeah, I gave them a few paintings that I really loved. Mm. And, uh, you know, the book's about art uh, largely. So I looked at a lot of art and sent them lots of ideas. They gave me some suggestions back. And, you know, the... The business behind getting your book published there's lots of things you get a say in and lots of things that unfortunately you don't and although in my contract it wasn't necessarily something that i could uh kind of decide i did still get to choose between a few different options and i am happy with how it's came out i, I think it's really cool and it represents the the book quite well I yeah think. but as i said to you I just said to you when you you came in i would pick it up in a bookshop yeah which i think is the test of a good cover is would I be intrigued enough to pick it up and I definitely would because it's a really good cover. Can you tell us a wee bit about the book? Yeah absolutely so um, it's a trilogy this is the first part and uh, Anna on Dreaming is part one the trilogy is called Metics Fade and I wanted to write about art literally changing the world so I'm lucky enough to have lots of friends that are very creative artists, musicians, you know, uh, people that are really good at crafty stuff, and I'm not. <laughs> but I'm I'm okay at writing, you know. I'm I, I would go so far as to say I'm I'm pretty good. Um, if that doesn't sound too arrogant, so I I try to capture all of that stuff that I love about art in a story, and I, I love fantasy. I love urban fantasy, and I wanted to create a framework with the story where I could write about anything that I was interested in any magical thing um, so that the idea came to me that maybe in this version of the world that Anna lives in uh, art literally changes the world so that the phrase that I use a few times is artists who can paint dance or sing new realities um, so that was that was the premise where did that come from that idea um, well the inspiration came from a, a dance performance so I was at a modern dance performance with my wife and it was with most of these things uh, I find them interesting but then my mind tends to wander um, especially when there's no clear narrative I think in the same with musical performances very different from opera or something where you're following a story with a, with a, with a recital or performance my, my mind tends to wander and I start getting ideas I think it's a great thing for, for writers or creative people to just go with that and let your mind go you don't need to be totally tuned in the the performance that you're seeing can inspire you in new ways. So this dance performance was very, very interesting, but it also gave me all these ideas. I started feeling like in that auditorium, uh, a new world was being created around me and it was created by the, the synthesis of the dance and the music. And I just had all these ideas and I started thinking, well, this is like a whole other world I'm in right now. You know, it's strange to think there's people going about their everyday life outside and I'm totally absorbed in, in this world. And I thought that was a great metaphor or a great way to write about magic, about uh, reality changing based on just uh, beautiful things, you know, beautiful art. And Anna, she's a, she's a fascinating character. How did you create her? Was there a, a specific inspiration or did she just come together? I think like most things, whenever you're writing, you, you pull together all the different parts of your life. You know, I think like... On one level, some writers 
write about thinly veiled versions of people that they know or uh, or, or themselves. And I try t- to shy away from that. Um, I think the best writers or the writers that I'm most interested in, they do pull everything from their life, but they blend and mix them in new and interesting ways. And I think Anne, Anna is a blend of all those different characters. There's lots of things that she would do or say that that resonate with me. That's how I would react to a situation. But also she's she's very different from me. It's funny, um, a writer friend of mine, uh, Dixon, uh, he he asked me why I chose to write about a woman as a main character and and spend so much time writing about a a woman character when it can be more challenging for a man to um to put themselves in the shoes of a a young woman and think about their life and I said to him well I spend every day being a middle-aged guy you know I'm a 37 year old Scottish guy if I'm going to spend a hundred thousand two hundred thousand three hundred thousand words with another character I'd rather they were interesting and different to me um also there's plenty of male protagonists and this kind of story is far more interesting for me to to have a woman in that role so yeah i hope that answers your question i think anna's a blend of lots of people that i know and because she's she's to me anyway she's a hero she takes lots of the admirable traits of, of people that i know as well as some of the problems that they've had in their life because because anna's had a few problems in her <laughs> life uh how does the story start where do we first meet anna uh, we meet Anna on a night out. Uh, she's with two friends, and she's in one of those really awkward nights out that I think everyone can can empathise with, where she's with a friend and someone else that she doesn't like. So she's a bit of a third wheel, um, and I think yeah, lots of us have had that situation. Um, we're all protective of our very closest friends, and we all find it difficult when they choose a partner that we don't necessarily approve of. So in this case, Anna's with her her friend Sue, and uh, and with a, a man called Dean, whose motives are very, very clearly not good. Uh, so he's a bit dodgy. He's very dodgy. He's a bit. He's <laughs> a bit dodgy. Bit sketch, yeah, as they would say. Um, so so Anna's in that awkward situation where she both doesn't want to to lecture her friend or become too protective, but she's also worried about the situation. So it's a very awkward awkward setting, and it allows maybe some of the larger themes to play out from the story as a whole in miniature um so that's that's the idea i i like that whenever a story sets out what what the themes are of the the whole piece quite early on mm. um in, in microcosm it's yeah it's a very interesting start i found it quite gripping right away because you see you empathize immediately with anna she's in yeah. this slightly kind of awkward uncomfortable situation but she's still trying to look after her friend as well. And welcome back to Booked with me, Shirley Whiteside. And I'm talking to Thomas Welsh about his debut novel, Anna Undreaming. You're going to do a short reading for us. Mm-hmm. What, where are we in the story? So we're at chapter five, quite early on. And I feel like Anna's at quite a pivotal moment at this part of the story. She's still not really decided whether she's going to go with this whole idea of uh, pursuing the dreamers and and the the second main character in the story, Tej, has been in contact with her and he's basically trying to recruit her and she's trying to decide whether that's something she wants to to pursue or whether she should uh, be a bit more sensible, go home, make a cup of tea and forget about the whole thing. Okay, so this is from chapter 5 of Anna Undreaming. Anna attempted to fold the umbrella 
but the wind had blown it inside out so many times the metal spokes were ruined. She splashed her way to a nearby trash can and shoved it inside with some vigour, then went back to the crossroads to look out at the street sides again. She was completely lost. Dunmer Gardens was a short side street in the industrial east of the city, close to the river and surrounded by old abandoned factories and steelworks. It was a run-down area most sensible people avoided. The apartments were cheap, but even students and drug dealers didn't want to live there. Every second doorway she passed was boarded up, and she couldn't seem to find number 15. She read the numbers aloud as she walked past them again. 19A, 101, 17, 6, 21D. Pulling her phone from her pocket, she considered calling Tej. It was the sensible thing to do, but then none of this was really sensible. Why was she here? Why wasn't she calling the police? Why would she come to this part of town to see a man she had never met? This was exactly what her mother would be asking her right right now if she knew what Anna was doing. None of this was a good idea, but she'd chosen the path and now she had to push onwards through the madness, through and out the other end. Anna walked back along the deserted streets, zigzagging between piles of trash and huge puddles till she got to number 16B. Climbing three steps, she approached the doorway, perched on her tiptoes and looked through the the small window. There was, a buzzer, there was a buzzer, but inside there were no signs of life. Turning around to go back, she noticed a low gate in the fence. Pushing it open cautiously, she descended four more stairs and found a narrow path between the apartment buildings. Feeling like a trespasser, she took a few steps along the path. It was dark and narrow, and, if she, and she was sure it wasn't the right way, but it sheltered her from the rain. She looked back and for a moment was stung with a twinge of deja vu. If she chose to go back now, it would be the end of this journey. If she took a single step backwards, she would come to her senses. Call a taxi, go home, call her mother, report this all to the police, make a cup of tea, turn on the television, fall asleep in the sofa, wake up the next day and... No, that wasn't what she wanted. She'd been down that path before. She turned back into the dark passageway and pushed onwards. Her shoes already soaked, Anna tried to avoid the massive puddle at the end of the path. Taking a few steps backwards, she ran and jumped and splashed down to find herself in a fenced-off garden area. Little rocky trails led off to meander around bushes, flower beds and neatly planted trees, and behind her and around the corner, beneath two hanging baskets filled with flowers, was a clean white door labelled Number 15, Lady Almeria Braddock. Well... Anna exclaimed under her breath, surprised, relieved and unnerved all at once. She'd found the door. There was no excuse to give up now. She cautiously approached the entrance and took a moment to compose herself. What would she say? What did she hope to find? She was still debating what to do next when the door opened inwards by itself. Startled, she stepped back and almost fell. Brushing the wet hair out of her face, she looked up to see him. Come in out of the rain, Anna, said Teej. And that was Thomas Welsh reading from his novel, Anna and Dreaming. Pulse 98.4. Booked with Shirley Whiteside. Now, when you're creating another world, how do you actually go about it? Do you have lots of notes? Do you have sort of a whiteboard with everything sort of set out on it? How do you do it? Um, Well, my personal technique is to have notes on my phone. So I have my phone with me all the time. I have terrible handwriting that I struggle to read myself. So I've found that I, I've i got my phone and I have ideas. Often when I'm out walking, you know, going a big, long, long walk. Often when I'm in the shower, 
so I've got one of those new phones that's waterproof that helps <laughs> um, but it's just th- th- that thing whenever your mind's free to wander a bit that's when all the plot holes get plugged that's when all the the ideas come to the fore that's when all the scenes that aren't quite working snap into focus and it's just because your mind's free to, to work in the problem maybe a bit subconsciously you know you're not actively doing something you know people say a lot of authors say they have their best ideas while they're washing the dishes that's another one um but yeah so that's that that's my technique as regards like the the larger structure i don't have whiteboards i don't have mind maps although m- maybe i should um but with with this series of books at least i've kind of found systems as i've worked and as and when i've needed them so i didn't start with a glossary but after a hundred thousand pages, I thought to myself, maybe a good idea to write a glossary here, <laughs> especially in a, a book that's rich with terminology. You know? Yeah, I found that very helpful just I'm to glad. keep me on track because sometimes I thought, who are they again? What do they do? So that was I found that really, really useful. And you don't find it in a lot of fantasy books. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. went back and forth on it. I mean, I like language and I like names, uh, and I think that comes through in the book as well. Not quite like Tolkien level of creating my own language. But there are certain words that were just the, the the proper words to describe stuff in this in this world, whether it's metic or etune or asti or you know all these all these phrases. Um, they only they were the only words that worked for me. Mm. They were the only ones that seemed true to the story. So I had to use them, and that meant maybe throwing some terminology at the reader. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was to write about magic, um, but without using too many tropes. So yep. this this is a book about magic systems, but I, I've checked this just to make sure I'm correct. I never use the word magic in any of the books. So I've, right. I, I mean, I'm working on the second one just now, uh, which is mostly done. But in the first book, you won't find in 103,000 words, magic's never used. Um, and I, I don't want to rely on wizards, magicians, yep. wands, um, because that stuff can be interesting and you can have a twist on it, but that's not what this story's about. This story's about, hopefully as much as possible, new ideas and a new interpretation of that that kind of magic. Why did you decide on a trilogy? Was it just you felt from the outset the story was that big? Yes, absolutely. That's that's the, that's the answer. I wrote uh, and I started writing and whenever I started, very much my process was, was I suppose, what you'd call discovery writing. So as I was going, I was coming up with areas for the story to go and twists and turns and I was really enjoying the process of writing my first book and seeing where that took me. Of course, whenever you write like that, if you want still a traditional story shape and nice character arcs and a good structure to the story, you impose that later with rewriting. So that's what I found I was doing um, and what I'm continuing to do now. But um, Anna and Dreaming was far too long to be one book. Um, anyone will tell you it's quite hard to sell a book to a publisher that's more than 100,000 words yeah. and and Anna and Dreaming is a hundred, more than 100,000 words but it was a lot more so it had to be split so actually book one and two were really written together and I had to find a, a point where I could split that book so a good logical breaking point and I split the first half off like you know taking a big block of cheese and cutting half of it <laughs> take it to one side you know cook it into something tasty so I took that that first half and I, I rewrote it quite extensively changed quite a lot um, and that that first chunk became Anna Undreaming and I know that there's a lot more story to tell and it's going to take another book to finish that 
even with a good idea of what happens in, in book two, which I'm kind of redrafting just now. How long did it take you to write your first draft? Uh, two years, I suppose, to get to this stage. Um, but in between that, I've done a lot of other writing too. So as I said, I've written most of the second book. Um, I've had another go at a manuscript for a, a kind of more of a dark, sort of grim dark fantasy story as well, which was fun. But I've had to put on the back burner. I've written some stuff for, for video games, some kind of universe background story stuff, which was fun. I've written some short stories. Um, managed to be lucky enough to have a few in print and win some competitions. So, yeah, I've been busy. Um, I think that's good for me personally as well. I found that when I get a bit blocked with an Undreaming or Metics Fade trilogy, I can go and write something totally different and it, it kind of um, oils oils the gears and then I can get back to an Undreaming. And I find that I miss, I miss her and I miss those characters when I go away for a little while. And it's funny, all the, the little plot problems... Or, or pacing issues, they just, they ease up, you know, it's just like muscles relaxing almost, and when I go back to Metics Fade, it, it really just, it goes, you know, that is definitely the the series where I find it easiest to make progress, and in some ways writing the short stories is like, um, is a much more challenging thing for me, so after I do that for a little while and I come back to on Dreaming, I say, oh yeah, this is this is like uh, the bicycle's going downhill now, you know, after after cycling uphill for a while. And how have you found the publishing process? Interesting. It, yeah, it can be quite tricky for some people. Absolutely fascinating. Very, very involved. And it's a whole other world. So I come from a background. Well, uh, I, I wrote about games for a while, and games has its own culture and its own ethos and its own personalities and that's very interesting and has lots of good and bad things but I found it to be honest the the publishing industry has been very positive experience I think it's very inclusive and maybe some people in publishing um, think that it's not and there are certainly areas that it can be much better in yeah. but I think directly comparing it to for example film or games I think there's a lot that the publishing industry has right I think that the world of like booktubers and social media is fascinating i think so many of them do a really good job there's really clever criticism and commentary on on uh, everything that comes out especially in the genre that i write and kind of speculative fiction sci-fi and fantasy um yeah so generally it's, it's very interesting there's so many different aspects to it as well whether it's a promotion you know it's funny there's whenever people are are talking about writing often and you, you'll know this experience yourself because you're you kind of in that area. Lots of people tell you they have a book in them, you know, like lots of people, oh, I, I should get back to that book that I'm thinking about writing one day. Um, and they should, it's a great thing, you know, if they've got that burning desire. But writing the book's like one quarter of it. it it's um, I, I spent as much time writing my pitch letter to send to agents and redrafting that as I did my first version of my manuscript. Because <laughs> finding an agent is just... Or, or a publisher, even better, it's really tough. Yeah. Um, it's really hard work and it's a, it's a dark art. There's no one there that's going to help you. Um, there's lots of people that give you advice, but there's no guidebook out there that you follow step by step. And the reason there isn't is because everyone's competing with everyone else. And if someone has the guidebook, they don't want to share it with you. They're not going to share their tips. Yeah, exactly. Um, How did you find working with an editor? It, it was great. I mean, I've been really lucky and the publisher that, that I went with has been just fantastic um they're an indie publisher they're based in uh the states they're called isle hollow 
they're really doing incredible things. I mean, their authors are doing very well and I've been lucky enough to have tons of support from them. So I feel like that's a big reason why Anna and Dreaming's really taken off in the way that it has. Um, but their editing process was very detailed and very meticulous. And I, that's what I wanted. Um, so I was very unprecious about my work. This is my first book. And although I'm happy with it, and I was happy with it at the point that I pitched it to publishers, like I'm not an expert. I'm not. I've not written a hundred books. I'm not the the greatest writer of all time by a long shot. So if they had the expertise and advice to make it better, then that's what I wanted to call upon. And in the end, I did get quite a few offers of publication, and a lot of the ones that I got were just we love the book. We think it's great. Let's let's just go. And I would kind of push back a little bit and say, well, what did you think of this section? Is there any areas that we could work on? You know, are you happy with it? And I got the impression from from one publisher that maybe they hadn't even read it. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a a lot of sharks out there in the publishing industry as well, so you have to be aware of that. From other ones, they certainly had read it and they liked it, but they weren't necessarily going to work through page by page and give me feedback and advice. And and I'll hollow where. And what they said was they loved the book, they were passionate about it, and they said, we think it could be even better. And that meant a lot to me because, you know, there's no reason for them to say that except that they're being straightforward with me, they're being honest, and they're willing to put in that work. And the the work that my editors put in was just phenomenal, multiple passes through, step by step, giving me advice, tips. You know, often I would say no. <laughs> so they would say, what about if we did this? And I would say, no. We're not going to do that. But other times they would say, what about if this character was here um, or, or we changed this scene a little bit? And so often their feedback and advice was exactly what the book needed to become what it is now. Um, so they were great. And I think one tip for people that are getting feedback from an editor, um, I would say s- sleep on the, the mm. email. You know, after you get the email, read it and you're a human and you've created a thing that you're proud of. So your first response is going to be defensiveness when they say, I don't like this scene, it's not working, you're going to say, that's my favourite scene, you know, that's that's the one, That's the, oh, they just don't get it. And then maybe if you go back and read the message the next day, you'll say, well, you know, maybe I could do this, maybe they've, they've got a point. I think that the great thing about their feedback as well is that they would sandwich it between very positive comments, you know, so they would say very nice things, you know, I love this scene, oh, I really like this part. Sounds like you've landed a really, really good relationship yeah, yeah. You know, it's not just they're your publisher and it's a business, it's a relationship that you're building with them. It is, and they're keen and growing. Um, and the, you can see that in the releases they've had and how they've grown in stature with each new book that's came out. Um, and yeah, I think that working relationship, you know, it's sometimes these uh, these relationships, if they're going well, there'll be so many emails going back and forward. You'll be talking to them more than you talk to your mum you know um so you hope that that's working out and and I was very lucky was always sort of speculative fiction that you wanted to write yes it just came out (laughs) whenever I would write something that's what came out it's very strange you can't really write about stuff well if you're not in love with the, the subject that you're writing about you know I could try and write uh, I don't know a crime thriller or something and I, I would watch a movie or even read a book in that genre but it's just not what I want to write about so it'd be very difficult for me um, and I, I just found like 
you know, whenever the the word tap was turned on, what came out was was science fiction or fantasy or or speculative stuff. And strangely enough, every time I would write a short story, it would be some dark dystopian sci-fi, you know, Black Mirror stuff. And uh, whenever I write anything longer form, it becomes a kind of fantasy or urban fantasy thing. So I don't know why that happens, but that's that's what happens for me. When is the book out? So on the 20th of March. So that's when it pops up on Amazon and that'll be international. Um, if you're in the UK, you should go to the UK Amazon because that's the best way to get it. Um, and it'll be an ebook and paperback. And shortly after that, we should have it popping up in stores. So it'll be in Barnes & Noble in America. Um, it should be in Waterstones and... What are the other big bookshops here? There's only really Waterstones, isn't there? Yes. W.H. Smith. W.H. Smith. Yeah, Foils. It's quite small in comparison. Yeah, but, but most of those um, bookshops in the UK probably a couple of weeks later we're waiting for uh, cover quotes at the moment so that's that's been fun we've sent the book out quite widely and actually had a few authors approach asking to read it which has been fun so that's Anna Undreaming written by Thomas Welsh and it will be available on Amazon from the 20th of March and it will be in bookshop shortly after and if you're looking for the publisher it's Owl Hollow Press Thanks for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great it's fun. It's been a pleasure uh, reading the book. I really enjoyed it and look forward to the next part. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. Thank you, Shirley. Pulse 98.4. Shirley Whiteside.